This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thank you for joining the programme today. We're going to start off with a story by Leo Tolstoy, the well-known Russian author of great tomes like War and Peace, which runs to over 1,200 pages, and Anna Karenina, with its some 850 pages. But don't worry, we're not going to be listening to Leo Tolstoy for the next several months. The story, titled The Three Questions, is surprisingly brief. But just before we get to the story, let's set our motivation as we usually do, thinking that this and all our programs may become the cause for our enlightenment, so we can benefit all other living beings, just as they need, even taking them all the way to enlightenment, if we can. And if we can make this our motivation, it will be truly wonderful, for our object of meditation is countless beings, and our intention is only benefit to the highest level. So the positive potential we generate will necessarily then be very great. But if you cannot have such a vast motivation, at least think that you are participating in the program today so that you can become enlightened yourself. Thank you. Now let's get into the story. It goes like this. The thought came to a certain king that he would never fail if he knew three things. These three things were, what is the right time to begin something? Which people should he listen to? And what is the most important thing for him to do? The king, therefore, sent messengers throughout his kingdom promising a large sum of money to anyone who would answer these three questions. Many wise men came to the king, but they all answered his questions differently. In reply to the first question, some said the king must prepare a timetable and then follow it strictly. Only in this way, they said, could he do everything at its proper time. Others said that it was impossible to decide in advance the right time for doing something. The king should notice all that was going on, avoid foolish pleasures, and always do whatever seems necessary at that time. Yet others said that the king needed a council of wise men who would help him act at the proper time. This was because one man would find it impossible to decide correctly, without help from others, the right time for every action. But then others said that there were some things which could be urgent. These things could not wait for the decision of the council. In order to decide the right time for doing something, it is necessary to look into the future. And only magicians could do that. The king, therefore, would have to go to magicians. In their answers to the second question, some said that the people most necessary to the king were his counsellors. Others said the priests. A few others chose the doctors. And yet others said that his soldiers were the most necessary. To the third question, some said science. Others chose fighting, and yet others religious worship. As the answers to his questions were so different, the king was not satisfied and gave no reward. Instead, he decided to seek the advice of a certain hermit, who was widely known for his wisdom. The hermit lived in a wood, which he never left. He saw no one but simple people, and so the king put on ordinary clothes. Before he reached the hermit's hut, the king left his horse with his bodyguard and went on alone. 
As the king came near the hermit's hut, he saw the hermit digging the ground in front of his hut. He greeted the king and continued digging. The hermit was old and weak, and as he worked, he breathed heavily. The king went up to the hermit and said, I've come to you, wise hermit, to ask you to, to answer three questions. How can I learn to do the right thing at the right time? Who are the people I need most? And what affairs are the most important? The hermit listened to the king but did not speak. He went on digging. You're tired, said the king. Let me take the spade and work in your place. Thanks, said the hermit, giving the king his spade. Then he sat down on the ground. When the king had dug two beds, he stopped and repeated his questions. The hermit gave no answer, but stood up, stretched out his hand for the spade and said, Now you rest and let me work. But the king did not give him the spade and continued to dig. One hour passed, then another. The sun went down behind the trees, and at last the king stuck the spade into the ground and said, I came to you, wise man, for an answer to my questions. If you can give me no answer, tell me so and I will return home. Oh, here comes someone running, said the hermit. The king turned round and saw a bearded man running towards them. His hands were pressed against his stomach from which blood was flowing. When he reached the king, he fainted and fell to the ground. The king and the hermit removed the man's clothing and found a large wound in his stomach. The king washed and covered it with his handkerchief, but the blood would not stop flowing. The king redressed the wound until at last the bleeding stopped. The man felt better and asked for something to drink. The king brought fresh water and gave it to him. By this time the sun had set and the air was cool. The king, with the hermit's help, carried the wounded man into the hut and laid him on the bed. The man closed his eyes and lay quiet. The king, tired by his walk and the work he had done, lay down on the floor and slept through the night. When he awoke, it was several minutes before he could remember where he was or who the strange bearded man lying on the bed was. Forgive me, said the bearded man in a weak voice when he saw that the king was awake. I do not know you and I have nothing to forgive you for, said the king. You do not know me, but I know you. I am that enemy of yours who swore revenge on you because you put my brother to death and seized my property. I knew you had gone alone to see the hermit and I made up my mind to kill you on your way home. But the day passed and you did not return. So I left my hiding place and I came upon your guard who recognized me and wounded me. I escaped from him, but I should have died if you had not dressed my wounds. I wish to kill you and you have saved my life. Now, if I live, I will serve you as your most faithful servant and will order my sons to do the same. Forgive me. The king was very happy to have made peace with his enemy so easily and to have won him over as a friend. He not only forgave him, but said he would send his servants and his own doctor to look after him, and he promised to give back the man his property. Leaving the wounded man, the king went out of the hut and looked around for the hermit. Before going away, he wished once more to get answers to his questions. The hermit was on his knees, sowing seeds in the beds that had been dug the day before. The king went up to the hermit and said, For the last time I beg you to answer my questions, wise man. You have already been answered, 
said the hermit, still bending down to the ground and looking up at the king as he stood before him. How have I been answered? What do you mean? Do you not see, replied the hermit. If you had not pitied my weakness yesterday, and had not dug those beds for me, you would have gone away. Then that man would have attacked you, and you would have wished you had stayed with me. So the most important time was when you were digging the beds, and I was the most important man, and to do me good was your most important business. Afterwards, when the man ran to us, the most important time was when you were caring for him, because if you had not dressed his wounds, he would have died without having made peace with you. So he was the most important man, and what you did for him was your most important business. Remember then, there's only one time that is important, and that time is now. It is the most important time because it is the only time we have any power to act. The most necessary person is the person you're with at a particular moment, for no one knows what will happen in the future and whether we will meet anyone else. The most important business is to do that person good, because we were sent into this world for that purpose alone. Now, in our last program, we spoke about Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, the keen and distinguished professor at the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who is also a long-time researcher of positive emotions and their benefits. If you were with us, you may remember that she has formulated what she calls the broaden and build theory, which basically says that micro-moments of positivity, and I quote, accumulate over time and put people on a trajectory of growth by broadening their awareness and building their resources for survival. That means the more we build our positive emotions, the better physical health we have, the more we grow in trust and compassion, the less likely we are to get depressive symptoms and we recover from stress relatively quickly. Positive emotions also build resilience and resourcefulness and help us improve our social connectedness. In the last program, Dr. Fredrickson was interviewed by Dr. Mariana Mogerson, but on the website thesunmagazine.org I found another interview with Dr. Fredrickson entitled The One You Were With. And now you can probably guess why I included Leo Tolstoy's story in the program. This interview seemed to have so much that was relevant to our discussion on familiarizing ourselves with positive emotions that I felt compelled to include it in our program today, even though we had heard something of what Dr. Fredrickson had to say last week. So here goes. The interviewer is a writer by the name of Angela Winter, who is based in Cabra, North Carolina. Before the interview, she was hooked up to a machine in Dr. Fredrickson's lab that measures vagal tone, an expression that describes the subtle variation in heart rate as we breathe in and out. Winter writes, When functioning most efficiently, the heart slows down slightly during exhalation. The greater the difference between your heart rate at inhalation and at exhalation, the higher your vaginal tone, which predicts better immune function, cardiovascular health, glucose regulation, and, oddly enough, social skills. Fredrickson has found that practicing loving-kindness meditation seems to help people cultivate higher vaginal tone. She says our hearts literally become more responsive to our breath as we experience loving feelings towards others. 
Winter did a 20-minute meditation on loving-kindness while hooked up to the machine, though she never learned the results of the experiment. She had interviewed Dr. Fredrickson before, so the present interview starts with a reference to that. She asks, During our last conversation back in 2009, I asked you if there was one positive emotion that seemed to be more beneficial than others, and you said no, that all positive emotions appear to generate equally good outcomes. Now you've changed your mind? Dr. Fredrickson responds, I have. I'm not in any way downplaying the value of other positive emotions, all of which help us become better versions of ourselves. But the data have led me to think that one emotion, love, is doing something different. In my research, I keep seeing that the positive emotions people feel in connection with others seem to be a real driving force beneath the health benefits. When we experience joy or amusement or gratitude together with another person, that moment could equally be described as a brief experience of love. I actually borrowed this idea from an earlier motion theorist, Carol Izzard, then expanded on it. Asks Winter, So you're saying that while you and I are talking together, an emotion can co-arise in both of us? Yes, says Dr. Fredrickson. I think we can co-experience emotions. We tend to think of emotions as belonging to an individual, my gratitude, your anger, but a degree of biobehavioral synchrony can emerge when two people feel positive emotions in each other's company. You can see this in their body language, the way they move, how engaged they are, how their gestures mirror each other. There's also facial mimicry. One person smiles and the other smiles back. Research is beginning to point to an invisible synchrony as well. When people share a positive emotion, the levels of certain biochemicals in their bodies rise in unison, and there's a similarity in their neural firings too. We're just getting the initial glimpses of this, and it isn't easy to study. You can't simply have two people engage in intimate conversation while in the brain scanner. But we're seeing hints that a single positive emotion can roll like a wave through two brains and bodies at once. The synchrony could also happen to us in larger groups, such as a whole stadium full of people who all stand up and cheer at the same time. Or maybe the tempo of a piece of music brings a crowd's movements into sync. I'd call that love too. Between two individuals, the connection can happen with eye contact or touch or even just a voice over the phone. I argue that this real-time sensory connection is one of the preconditions for micro-moments of love to emerge. When you and I are connecting and I express a positive emotion, it can bring out the same emotion in you, which, as you express it, is going to amplify my emotion. The good feeling is reverberating or resonating between us. The term I have coined for this is positivity resonance. Winter then says, We've been taught that good boundaries are necessary for a healthy relationship. This would really challenge that. Not altogether. Fredrickson says, Boundaries are important when there are negative emotions in the room. But why keep a boundary up when we can share a laugh? These micro-moments of love build our bonds with others in the long term. I think they help babies develop secure attachments, for example, when infants and parents share positivity through instances of facial and behavioral mimicry. But calling this love is a bit of a stretch for winter. Can we really say 
that any positive emotion we share with others is love, says Fredrickson. I'm not trying to degrade love, but rather to enhance it by elevating these momentary experiences that we typically have trivialized. If we use the word rapport, or say we clicked, or there was a real energy there, we might not recognize the true power in such a moment. We have put love on a pedestal, and I'm not trying to knock it off. I'm saying that these micro-moments belong up there too. When I give talks, I ask people to set aside their pre-existing views of love just for an hour. After that hour is over, they might decide that what I've said is nonsense and go back to their old views, or they might supplement those old views with this new one, which, I think, can give us a better handle on what makes us feel alive and healthy, and also on how to build stronger relationships. Ultimately, my goal is to get people to see those moments of positive connection as important. Whether people choose to call them love or not is up to them. If I weren't trying to communicate with a broader audience, I would stick to the nerdy phrase positivity resonance just to be clear. In fact, when I write for scientists, I often don't even refer to love. But I'm trying to translate our scientific findings into the language of what goes on in our hearts. I'm also inspired by Buddhist psychology and loving-kindness meditation. Loving-kindness is already an awkward word, as if it's trying to be two words at once. One of the better translations I've heard for it is friendly feeling. Now that's what you're cultivating through the meditation practice. When you actually get to make use of that friendly feeling in an interaction with somebody else, that's when you experience what I'm calling love. Winter then asks, is the friendly feeling of loving-kindness that we experience alone also a form of love? Some people would view it as the epitome of love, a sort of unconditional embrace of all humanity, like the Christian notion of agape. You suggest yourself that we derive physical and mental benefits from it. Loving-kindness meditation unlocks all kinds of benefits, says Dr. Fredrickson. The data on that are clear. But the data also tells us but these benefits don't come just from the time you spend alone on the cushion. The way that your meditation practice changes your day-to-day -day connections with others appears to be key. I think of loving-kindness meditation as a preparatory activity that makes positive connections more likely. It's a means to another end, not an end in itself. This is consistent with my reading of Buddhist psychology. Winter is then interested in romantic love, and where it fits into all of this. Fredrickson thinks that romantic love takes bonding and attachment to greater heights. She says, I want to draw attention to what it has in common with other kinds of love, like that between friends or siblings or parents and children. There's certainly a lot going on in romantic love that's not explained by positivity resonance. Yet she has found that positivity resonance has strengthened her marriage. How? asks Winter, and Fredrickson replies, Just by helping me see how important it is to spend time with my husband over breakfast, or to share an interesting idea or something funny that our kids have done. At the beginning of our relationship, I was a workaholic academic. My husband would call me at work during the day, and before we'd hang up, I'd tell him how many minutes we'd been on the phone. I was saying in effect, Hey, you're interrupting me. Even after I'd stopped being rude, I still used body language or tone of voice to signal, come on, I've got work to do here. 
I realize now that those little breaks in my day in the larger scheme of things are valuable, like a tune-up. Rationally, I knew that our marriage meant more to me than my job. But when he called, I didn't necessarily think, oh, here's an opportunity to strengthen our bond. I used to think of my work and my romantic life as separate, monolithic entities. Now, I think of my whole life as one moment after another. Our real relationship lies in these small interactions. I can feel them knitting us closer together, and when we miss out on them, I can feel a bit of a strain between us. Winter asks then what it is that makes an emotion positive. And Fredrickson defines a positive emotion as one, and I quote, that we find to be pleasant, such that all other things being equal, we want it to continue. Sometimes people tell me there are negative emotions they want to feel. Anger, for instance, because it encourages them to fight injustice. But you don't want the anger to last forever. You just want it around for as long as it's useful and then you're done with it. A positive emotion is both enjoyable and makes you want more of it. Sometimes people have a problem with the word positive. Perhaps a more accurate term would be pleasurable. But that sounds as if it were based on physical pleasure. Which leads to Winter asking Dr. Fredrickson her views on physical bodily pleasures and why they have not been part of her studies. My hypothesis is that physical pleasures narrow your attention around whatever is providing the good feeling, whereas positive emotions broaden your awareness and encourage you to recreate that circumstance again, but in more open, balanced and diverse ways, says Fredrickson. Of course, physical pleasures and positive emotions often go together in our closest relationships, but when pleasures are devoid of positive emotions, they can pull us towards obsession and addiction. Positive emotions help us to find meaning and dream big about what kind of contributions we can make to the world, whereas physical pleasures just motivate us to have that feeling again and again and again. This distinction could be important for helping people develop healthy habits. Dr. Fredrickson says that she thinks love can be experienced on many different levels, but she comes at it as an evolutionary psychologist, interested in the purpose that emotions have served in human development over millennia. She understands, though, the peril of talking about love from a physical perspective. People could think she's talking about sex. She says, We're so concerned with sexuality in our culture that we've lost sight of the fact that every emotional connection we make is a physical experience. Instead of examining love songs and poems, I'm looking at what's happening in your actual heart. How is it affected by these moments of connection? How are your white blood cells affected? In our lab, we take pairs of strangers and give them an icebreaker activity, a set of questions for them both to answer, such as, If you could invite anyone to dinner, who would it be? It's an exercise developed to encourage disclosure, and we know that disclosure increases levels of the hormone progesterone, as well as people's degree of behavioral synchrony with one another. At the end of the study, participants often say, I felt energized. And that's because something was changed physically in them. There's a cascade of biochemicals running through your body during a good conversation. For example, you release more oxytocin, a neuropeptide associated with intimacy. There is also clear evidence of neural synchrony between people. 
when you and I are really attuned to one another, our brain activity becomes highly similar. The researcher who's done the most work on this is Yuri Hassan at Princeton University. He says that speaking and listening are not two separate acts. Rather, communication is a single act performed by two brains. Fredrickson says that when we are feeling safe and secure, oxytocin makes us more attuned to and influenced by others. It appears to encourage our latent biological tendency to be attentive to others instead of wrapped up in our own concerns. Vagal tone operates in a similar way. Having higher vagal tone is associated with being better able to read others' emotions and expressions. Winter asks her to explain vagal tone, and she says, Vagal tone is the degree to which your breathing pattern affects your heart rate. In people who have low vagal tone, there isn't much connection between whether they are breathing in or out and what their heart is doing. In people who have higher vagal tone, their heart rate slows down just a touch as they exhale, which is a good thing. Fredrickson explains that vagal tone predicts whether we find social interactions enjoyable or not. She says, People with autism, for example, have very low vagal tone and also show a lack of interest in social engagement. Higher vagal tone boosts our interest in others and seems to quell our fear of meeting new people. Scientists have called it a key part of our innate social engagement system. But there are no exact norms for vagal tone. Fredrickson's lab measures one person's vagal tone against others in the same sample. But she admits that her samples do not represent the whole population. In our research, we don't tell participants what their vagal tone is because the meaning of any particular value is still debated, she says. I don't even know whether I have high or low vagal tone. I'm the first test subject of every study we run, so there are files that have my vagal tone in them, but I've never looked. And she's not interested in finding out because she says vagal tone is like a cholesterol level. It is variable. Our studies show that people's vagal tone improves in conjunction with the amount of positivity resonance they experience, she says. I'd rather pay attention to the connections I make with others during the day than to a numerical measurement. Winter changes the subject a little and asks, You've written that a lack of positivity resonance is in fact more damaging to your health than smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol excessively or being obese. That's quite a provocative statement. It's based on findings by a researcher named Julian Holt Lundsted and her colleagues at Brigham Young University, says Fredrickson. Her paper on this is making major ripples all over the social sciences because it suggests that we're not targeting all the right behaviours when it comes to improving people's health. We need to focus also on creating more positive social connections. But coming up with ways to do that has been vexingly hard, I think, because we don't fully understand what drives social engagement. Setting up bingo games in retirement communities, for example, doesn't work, because just being around people isn't enough. I'm hoping that my work on positivity resonance will help us discover ways to improve social engagement. So there is some scientific proof, if you like, to indicate that the most important time for happiness is now. The person you are with is the most important person, and the most important work is creating positivity or goodness with regard to that person. The conversation goes on, but we'll have to save that for next time. For now, our time is up.
Thanks for joining the program today, and I hope you'll be with us again next week. Please dedicate, as we usually do, to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.